Good morning, church. Great to see you all. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and glad in it. Glad you've chosen to be here with us. If you're watching online, welcome to you. Trust that you're well and safe, and uh, we're glad you've joined us. Um, Very excited to uh, begin a new sermon series this morning called Dangerous Prayers. And this is going to be especially foundational for us as we finish the end of the year and get into next year and some of the plans we have for exciting activities that will require the foundation of prayer. And today I want you to think about dangerous prayers, Lord, make me bold. Everyone say bold. Bold. Say it more boldly. Bold. Bold. There you go. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 4. I want to read the first 22 verses here from Acts chapter 4 and Let me just uh, set this up, give you a little context. Peter and John, of course, two of the original disciples, this is after the day of Pentecost when when 120 men and women were filled with the Holy Spirit and they they dumped into into the streets. And now in the first century, we have this dynamic witness for Christ and emboldened by the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. And Peter and John are going to the temple to pray one afternoon. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. And... They encounter a beggar. This man was born lame. Apparently his feet, ankles are uh, infirm. He's carried to this gate called Beautiful every day where he begs for his life, his livelihood. And there he is. And as Peter and John pass by, this beggar gets their attention. And Peter bends down close to this man and asks him, to make eye contact. Look at me, he said. The man looks up at him, and Peter said, we don't have any money, but what we do have, we're going to give to you. And then he prays a bold prayer. He said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took the man by the hand and stood him up. And the Bible says the man went walking, and immediately the Bible says his ankles and feet were made whole. And he stood on his feet for the first time in 40 years. He was born this way. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. And it was astonishing for everyone who obviously knew this guy because he had been begging there for so long. And they knew him well. And so as a result of this miracle, Peter and John get in trouble with the authorities. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 4. After this miracle, and let's think of it in the context of dangerous praying and for boldness. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. I invite you to do that. And let me just mention something. I was in the hearing of a denominational leader, actually a bishop in a denominational church. And when the congregation was asked to hear the word of God, This is what she said. She said, as I read the scripture today, listen for the word of God. Listen for the word of God. Now, that may sound okay to you, but there's a subtle distinction because I knew what she meant. She meant that somewhere in here is the truth. And so listen for it if you can hear it. That's not our perspective here at Union Chapel, just so you know. This this isn't something that we're listening for. This is the word of God. We believe the Bible to be true. 
It's reliable for what we believe and how we live. And so we're not, we're not digging in the scripture trying to find a nugget of truth. This is the truth of God. And so in today's hearing, hear the word of God for the people of God. Amen? The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. May God empower us, embolden us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to be honest with me. How many of you honestly believe in the power of prayer? Raise your hand. Oh, lot, most of you, almost virtually all of you. Let me ask you this question as well. How many of you believe that you could pray more? You believe in the power of prayer. You just admitted that. But how many of you would admit that you could pray more consistently and with more faith? That's about the same number of hands. Now, let me ask you the question. What's up with that? What does that mean? You believe in the power of prayer. I have a theory about some of this. Uh, I, I think that most of us really do love God, want to honor God, do our best for God. But in some cases, we don't feel like we're very good at prayer. You know, for example, we get intimidated with people who are really good at it. You know, you're next to them when they're praying and they're quoting scripture when they pray or cursing the devil or 
or bold about something they're believing God for and you just get intimidated by it. And so that kind of throws you off. At other times, uh, uh, we, we find prayer hard because it doesn't really fit who we are and our personality. I, I will make a confession to you. Prayer is not easy for me. Um, my, pers- my personality type, uh, when, when one of the inventories suggests that my personality type likes to be in charge, likes to be in control, uh, there's a one word for it. It's called mastermind. So, I'm, so there's a prayer associated with my personality type. Uh, all of the major personality types have a prayer associated to it. This is my prayer according to my personality. It goes like this. Lord, help me listen to others, though wrong they may be. <laughs> so I not only think I'm right all the time about everything. Prayer for me is, God, you and I know what's the right thing to do, so go ahead and you know, do your part, and I'll do my part. Let's, let's, get, let's get busy. It doesn't always work very well. Sometimes we just get in a rut. You know, it's, uh, it's safe, it's predictable, it's mundane. Sometimes it gets rote. Um, you know, bless my food today, this greasy fries and hamburger. I know I shouldn't be eating them, but I they're so good. Please bless, bless my hamburger. Uh, Lord, please keep me safe. You know, Lord, Lord, the parking lot's full today. Please help me find a spot in the parking lot. If you're Almighty God and you're listening to these prayers, <laughs> you got to think that maybe he wonders, what is wrong with those people? <laughs> Praying those little measly prayers like that. Yeah. David, King David, prayed this prayer. He prayed, search me, O God, and see if there's any offensive way in me. And then lead me in the right way. Everyone say dangerous. That's a dangerous prayer. Dangerous prayer. Are you kidding? Search me, oh God. See if there's anything offensive about me. Straighten me out. Danger. It's a dangerous prayer. You're asking for it. How about, how about this? God, break my heart with the things that break your heart. Now, Lord, just for your information, I'm just preaching. I'm not praying. <laughs> I'm just talking. That was, not, that was not a prayer. Dangerous prayer. God loves to answer that prayer. You want to put yourself through the, through the grinder, just pray that prayer. This is dangerous because God will answer that prayer and you'll be a mess. Your heart will be broken all the time. Be broken every time you turn around. Maybe be broken every time you meet somebody. I wonder when the last time you prayed a prayer like this, here I am, Lord, send me anywhere, anytime, whatever you want. God, I'm available. I give you my yes. I put my yes on the table. You put it on the map with the right people at the right time doing the right things. Dangerous kind of prayer. Dangerous kind of prayer. This story that we pick up here in the book of Acts where Peter and John have performed this amazing miracle of healing for this man who was begging. 
And finally, the authorities challenging them because they felt so threatened by the commotion and the activity around this miracle. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? By whose name are you preaching this message? And they say, well, know this. You and all of Israel know that it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. That guy. It's in his name that we preach and perform. He is the stone the builders rejected. And by the way, those Jews would have understood that Old Testament reference. He is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given among mankind by which we must be saved. In the name of Jesus. How many of you know that was a bold response to officials? What are you doing? In whose name have you been doing this? Well, the name of Jesus. By the way, the guy you killed and the guy God raised from the dead. <laughs> That's bold kind of talk. And so when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, took note that these guys had been with Jesus. Now, this is kind of a funny verse when they are described by the officials as unschooled and ordinary. I mean, they're just some folks, these two guys, Peter and John. They're not, they, have, they haven't been, gone to school. Uh, they don't have credentials. They don't have any social status. They're just a couple of rednecks. And here they are. And they're described as ordinary and unschooled. It's interesting, the Greek word translated ordinary there is a word pronounced idiotes. It can, be, it can be translated unschooled, ordinary, of no special value, and as you suspect, can also be translated idiot. <laughs> they were blown away and amazed that these idiots, who had nothing special about them, were incredibly bold in their faith of Jesus. So suddenly they've got this problem. They can't deny the miracle. It's created such a stir so they sternly warn these guys. Now listen, no more of this. No more preaching, teaching in the name of Jesus. No more of these miracles, no matter how you're doing them. We don't even want to know how you're pulling this off. But no more of this. And otherwise, we're going to arrest you. We're going to beat you. And if you persist, we're going to execute you. So it was a stern warning, very serious warning. And so what did the guys do in response to this kind of threat? They went to prayer. And they begin to pray. Now, what did their prayer sound like? Well, imagine yourself in that kind of situation. I imagine myself in that kind of situation. And I think, what kind of prayer would I pray? Well, I might pray something like, now, Lord, you know, it's getting pretty dicey out here on the streets. In fact, you know, we, we perform one little miracle. Next thing we know, we're thrown in jail, arrested and thrown in jail. Now we've been threatened. If we keep this up, we're going to be beaten and maybe executed. These boys aren't playing. We saw them kill Jesus. They've got capacity. They, they mean what they say. And, and by the way, Lord, I, you, you're going to have to do something. You know, you've got to keep us safe here. If we're going to keep preaching, you know, we, we want to know you're protecting us. I mean, after all, you know, I'm just, just trying to keep my job and make sure my 401k is growing so that I can retire comfortably. And in the meantime, I just want to keep my marriage together best I can and raise a family and, 
you know, go to church once in a while. I don't go every week, but, you know, especially with COVID now, such a good excuse not to go. So I, I just, you know, I don't go every week. I like to go to my small group. You know, I got some good friends there, you know, and talk about Jesus once in a while and listen to Christian music. You know, when they have a special offering at church once in a while, I like to throw a few dollars, you know, at Christmas, stuff like that. So I know you're not expecting a whole lot from me. So, so if you'll just put a hedge of protection around me, that'll be really helpful. Thanks so much. Here's their actual prayer. <laughs> I'll put it on the screen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They say, if you don't shut up, we're going to beat you. If you don't be quiet, we're going to execute you. You're going to be dead. So how do they respond to that? Lord, make me more bold than ever. Give me greater conviction than I've ever had. Lord, set me on fire for this message of hope found in Jesus Christ. They prayed a very dangerous prayer because following Jesus was never meant to be safe. I know what you're thinking right now. I didn't have to come today. I could have stayed home, had a perfect excuse. There's no pressure for me to be here. And so now I stumbled in here and I have to listen to this. It's not, it's not easy. Let me ask you a question. How amazed are people around you by your boldness? How amazed are people around you by your boldness for Jesus' sake? Some of you would be modest about that. You say, well, you know, maybe I'm a seven or an eight. You know, I'm kind of out there with my faith. And you're just being too modest because I know a lot of you and everybody who knows you knows you're a follower of Jesus. You are always saying a good word for Jesus. You are constantly thinking about the needs of others around you and being careful with people. You are, you are always willing and available to be of service. It, it, it's just easy to notice that you're a follower of Jesus and you're just being too modest because you're really a nine or a 10 on the boldness scale. Good for you. Now, there's some of you, you say, well, you know, I just, I just I'm more quiet about my faith. I don't, I don't like kind of being out there and getting pushy. And as you know, the culture we live in now is not receptive to the Christian message and to Christians in general. And I've got a lot of friends who just don't appreciate Christian people at all. And so I, you know, I'm kind of laying low with everybody. And um, I try to go to work and do the best I can. You may be the kind of person you're at work one day and it just squeaks out, you know, about your church or attendance or something like that. And the guy you've been working with for three or four years says, you're a Christian? Because there's no other real evidence otherwise. Well, yeah, I guess so. Oh, do you go to church? Yeah, I go to Union Chapel. Union Chapel? I go to Union Chapel. What church, do, well, what service do you attend? You know, well, yeah, I come at 10 o'clock. Oh, that's why I haven't seen you. You know, I come at 11.30 or 8.30, whatever. And, and so there's no significant, reliable evidence that you're a follower of Jesus at all. So, so my question again is, how amazed are people by your boldness? It's an important question. 
My roommate at the university my senior year was a, a transfer from the University of Missouri. Ken Pollitz grew up in one of the suburbs of Chicago. He's a big guy, 6'7", uh, weighed about 228 pounds when he was 20 years old. Uh, he had size 16 shoes. Ken was a big boy. He was a, he was a load. And he had gone to the University of Missouri to play basketball there, and that didn't work out. And so he transferred back closer to home at Valparaiso University and joined the basketball team. And so the coach thought that I would be the perfect roommate for Ken. And Ken was a nice guy and very pleasant to be around generally, but he's a monster. And, and the old adage, where does a bear sleep? You know, wherever he wants to. That's how I treated Ken, very respectfully, because Ken could break me in half, you know, if he just had a bad moment. So, so you, when you live in an eight foot by 10 foot cubicle with a guy that size, you just try to stay out of his way. And, you know, he, he would have his shoes lined up against a wall like this. And, you know, have to broad jump over his shoes. I mean, it's just unbelievable just gangly and wiry and all elbows. And, you know, on the basketball court, he's the kind of guy you, you are glad to have on your team because you don't have to be in proximity to him so you don't get your teeth knocked out, that sort of thing. And, and so, so if, if I was in the room, I would always ask Ken for permission. Hey, Ken, you mind if I watch TV? <laughs> you say, no, go ahead, thanks. <laughs> or if the TV's on and he turns it off, perfect. You know, I wasn't really interested in watching TV anyway. It's no, no problem. Well, one of my, one of my practices when I was, when I was uh, in my, tw- my 20s like that was I, I was bold. I was bold about my faith. And so I'd led my first roommate to Jesus. And now here was my second roommate. And I started telling him about Jesus early in the school year. And one, one day, Ken looked at me and he said, listen, I know that you, this is something that you're very passionate about, but he said, I'm a Lutheran, and, you know, I've, I've gone to church in my life. He said, I really don't need to hear any more about this, so if you don't mind. And I said, I don't mind. It's no problem. <laughs> so I just laid low, and I just said, Lord, just help me to be as reliable a witness as I can be for my roommate, Ken, and just pray that, that the seed will take root, all that. One week before the end of school, I came in the room one day, and I turned the TV on, and I sat down, and Ken turned it off, which is fine. It's just great. <laughs> it's no problem at all. One week to go, I'm still alive. It's all good. And Ken looked at me, and he said, you know, Greg, uh, you've been talking all year about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he said, I want you to know I've been thinking about that. And he said, I don't have that kind of relationship with God. He said, can you help me understand that? Yes, I can. And I talked to Ken for a little while, and Ken decided to become a follower of Jesus, and I was going to pray with Ken, a very simple prayer. Now, you've heard me talk about this before, that, that I take very seriously the opportunity to offer the Word of God to people. This is, this is not a podium to me. It's not a lectern. It's not a, you know, funky little stand to hold my notes. In my mind and my heart, I treat this like a sacred desk. This is a sacred place to stand. 
I was at the Billy Graham Center at the, called The Cove in North Carolina years ago, and down in the lower level of The Cove, there's all this memorabilia from Dr. Billy Graham's ministry over the years, and there's a pulpit there that he used in all of his crusades for about 25 years. So, so from behind that pulpit, Billy Graham preached the gospel to millions of people, literally. And of course, it was all roped off and, you know, do not enter and all that stuff. And I just looked around. Nobody was really there. So I jumped the fence and I walked over and I just stood behind that pulpit. Because that's sacred, that's sacred space. I take very seriously this responsibility the Bible says that all of us will be judged one day and given account for our lives. And the Bible also teaches that those of us who teach, like I am right now, will incur a more strict judgment, a stricter judgment. Now, you may think that's perfectly fine. I think it's completely unfair. <laughs> You're fine with it. It's, it makes me sober. So I'm very serious about this. So what I'm about to tell you, I have to give an account for someday. When I bowed my head and grabbed my roommate's hands to pray with him to receive Christ, I'm telling you, heaven came down. Heaven came down into that dorm room. The thought I had at the time, this was the discernment I had. We began, I be, we began to pray, and I, and I actually stopped because I, I just said, Ken, just pray this prayer after me, you know, just to lead someone to Christ. Just help people. Take the step. And I, I knew what to do. And I knew how to help him. And so I said, just pray after me. And I, st I started to pray and I stopped because the presence of Christ so filled that, that dorm room that I just paused for a moment. I said, do you, do, you sense what, do you sense the presence of God? He said, is that what this is? Yes. The thought, next thought I had was there are 10,000 angels in this room. Now, where did that thought come from? How does that even work? I don't even know. But in eternity, you mark this, mark this moment. Someday, someone's going to walk up and say, you know, there are 10,000 angels that assembled for that conversion prayer. The Bible says the angels in heaven rejoice over one. And I led Ken in a prayer, and I mean, it was amazing. I was moved by it. I just thought, what is happening? Because I'd prayed with other people to receive Christ, and this was just part of, part of the way God uses me. And, and so I'd seen this before, but this was so unusual, so powerful. Ken was in tears. I mean, he was just reduced to just a, a, a pile of tears and emotion. And after a few moments, he composed himself. He got over and went over to the phone. Now, no cell phones at this time. These are phones connected to the wall. And he goes over and he dials. I said, who are you calling? He said, I'm calling my mother. And I hear Ken say, Mom, guess what just happened to me? Well, I don't know, Ken, what happened? He said, I just became a Christian. She said, I thought you already were. She said, he said, no, Mom. He said, I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. He said, I, I understood Jesus in my head, but I didn't have him in my heart. He's real to me now. And he's in tears and his mother's in shock. He hangs up the phone and he immediately starts dialing another number. I said, who are you calling now? He said, I'm calling my girlfriend. He'd been dating a girl for two years and it was very serious. 
And he shared the same testimony with her. His relationship with that girl ended on the spot. It was over. She said, what do you mean you invited Jesus into your life? She said, listen, I can't date you. I can't, I can't be with you if you're going to live that kind of life. He said, oh, well. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, heaven was in the room. Now, fast forward a couple of years, and we were at Ken's rehearsal dinner for his wedding. And I was part of the wedding party, and we're, we've, we've completed the rehearsal, and now we're at the dinner. And this is where traditionally the groom and the bride will, will introduce all of their groomsmen and bridesmaids to everyone so everyone can get acquainted and know the, the connection there. And so Ken was working his way through the groomsmen, and he got to me, and he said, Greg was my roommate my senior year at Valparaiso, and we played on the basketball team together, and he's been a great friend. And Greg is the one who... <laughs> and And the same thing happened again in that restaurant. The glory of God settles into the room. And Ken is standing there and he's in tears. I mean, he's literally bent over sobbing. He cannot compose himself because of how meaningful his relationship with Christ is. And you can, can you feel the tension can you, can you feel it? And, and so the presence of God settling down. And when I prayed with Ken to receive Christ those two years earlier, the discernment I had was there are 10,000 angels in this room. And, and when it happened at the rehearsal dinner, the discernment I had was this thought came into my head. I don't know where this comes from. It must have been the Holy Spirit just saying it. And this is what I heard. The presence of Christ in this room is so real that it would change every skeptic within 50 miles if they came into contact with it. Interesting thought. So I thought, Ken can't talk anymore. He's indisposed. I can talk. And so I just stood up and I picked it up from where he left off. And I told everybody what happened that night in our dorm room when he received Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you can receive him today as well. You can know for certain that you have peace with God. You don't have to leave this room today without knowing that you're right with God. Powerful, powerful thing. It was just an amazing thing. Look at Acts chapter four, verse 30. I'll put it on the screen. This was how they prayed. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Look at the next verse. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. This means physically shaken. Like, oh, the place is shaking. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, boldly. Listen, you shut up, we're going to hurt you. You shut up, we're going to kill you. But they're filled with the Spirit of God. Peter said to them, listen, you'll have to decide whom we should listen to. We can either listen to you, you can hurt us and kill us if you want, or we can listen to the one who lives and has saved the world by the sacrifice of his own life. And this is the message we've been called to preach. You decide, you judge, you work it out. 
But as far as we're concerned, we can't stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. And they wanted to do it with boldness. You may say, well, I'm, I'm just not naturally a very bold person. You know, I'm kind of quiet, I'm timid, reserved, laid back. Um, I don't do my faith in public very well. Let me tell you something else that may surprise you. On the personality scale, um, one of the measurements is extrovert, introvert. You're looking at an extreme introvert. I am extreme introvert. I need long hours every week alone just to survive. You would never, you would never, you may think I'm just pulling your leg right now. Yesterday I was on the phone with my 87-year-old mother whose short-term memory is not good. And so she continued to ask me the same question, you know, over the course of 20 minutes of a conversation. One of the questions she always asked me is, how many people are coming to your church? And I always tell her a different number. <laughs> just for fun. But it encourages her so much. You know, I never say 50. I always, you come up with a big number. She goes, oh, praise God. So, and then 10 minutes later, she says, now how many are coming to your church? But my mother remembers me as a child and she nicknamed me, my first name is actually John, and she nicknamed me Silent John because I was that little boy who hid behind his mother's skirt. I literally would not talk to anyone. And so yesterday as she reminisced about that, in the context of what I've done all of my life, she said to me, Greg, you do know that your entire life and the way God has used you is a miracle. It's a miracle. She said, because you wouldn't talk to anybody for any reason at any time. She said, I, it's just hard for me to believe how God has used you. I said, I don't know, Mom. I guess I was just saving up my words. <laughs> saving them up. Just have a, have a quota. <laughs> Had to save them. My point is that from a biblical sense, boldness is not a personality trait. You may be naturally shy, reserved, quiet. That may be you. I get you. I am you. No, no, you're not like me. Yes, I am. So it's not a personality trait. Boldness is about being filled with the Holy Spirit and given the capacity to be bold in the circumstances that God arranges for you. That's what it means. So you have to be very careful if you pray this dangerous prayer. Make me bold. Make me bold. Because you're going to have to come out of your comfort zone. Listen, you will probably never get to God's best plan for your life, his ultimate destiny for your life, if you stay in your comfort zone. Probably won't get there because your comfort zone isn't the place where God wants to use you the most. He wants to put
pull you out of that comfort place so that you can be more bold as your engagement. It may be in your high school speech class. I was in senior high school, uh, senior year, and had a speech class. We were all supposed to give a five-minute speech, and so I had some inane subject that I was going to preparing for the night before, and I'm just saying, you know, God help me with this because I, you know, I just hate to do public speaking. It's just, there are two fears in humanity. There's not a close third fear. The two greatest fears among all humans in the world, number one is the fear of death, <laughs> and number two is the fear of public speaking. These are the two things that people fear the most. There isn't a close third to those two. And I was no different. And so I'm the night before a speech in senior high school. And I'm just ready to go to bed. And suddenly I hear the Spirit of God say, I don't want you to talk about that in your speech tomorrow. I want you to share your testimony with your speech class. No, <laughs> that's not a good idea. What kind of a silly idea is that? That's not proper. That's not appropriate. That's not the right place for that. You don't do that. No, I'm not doing that. And the Spirit of God says, we can do whatever you want. But I want you to share your testimony in speech class. Dang it. <laughs> so the next morning, I've, I stand up in speech class, and I cannot shake it. I, can't, I cannot get away from it. I just can't. And it's completely out of my comfort zone. It's completely out of my personality. It's completely wrong on every level. And I stood up, stood up and said, look, I was going to talk about this, but really I just feel like I should tell you about my relationship with God. And I rehearsed my testimony, how I found Jesus, that Jesus found me, and it's, how it's changed my life, and the difference it's made, and how happy I am because of it. And in the middle of me telling that simple story, the Spirit of God shows up in high school speech class. And there are five or six of my, my classmates, girls, women, they begin to weep. Literally, they begin to sob. I mean, you can hear them crying. And I'm finishing up my story, and the Spirit of God, the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit just settles down on every student in the room. And I'm just thinking, wow, look at that. That's something. I finished my speech, finished my testimony, went and sat down, and now the teacher has to follow it. And he gets up, and again, I'm behind the sacred desk. Listen to me. The fear of God was on him. He wasn't, well, you know, everyone has their own opinion about these things around religion. You know, that's probably not appropriate to be saying here in a public school. And blah. There was none of that. None of that. It, it was, well, uh, thank you, Greg. Um, well, that's... Uh, something to think about, and um, I guess um, maybe we'll just uh, cancel the rest of the speeches this morning. And I mean, he was just the fear of God. He was afraid. He was afraid for his soul. That's what, that's what happens when the fear of God comes on people. He dismissed the class. We went out in the hallway, and my classmates were coming up to me, many of them in tears, saying, that was very meaningful to me. Thank you for sharing that. Listen, Beth and I went to our 40th class reunion a few years ago, 40th class, high school class reunion. There was a girl in that class that day who walked up to me at our 40th high school class reunion. She said, do you remember that time in speech class? I said, yes, I do. She said, I have never forgotten it. 
Let me tell you something. Let me tell you, it may be a business presentation or it may be meeting that you're attending and there are inappropriate things going on and you just lovingly and appropriately say, no, let's not do that. We can do better than that. Or maybe it's dressing modestly in a culture that has no more boundaries, no more shame with the way you comport yourself. Or maybe, maybe as a student, as a high school student or a college student, you say, you know, look, I'm not, I'm not hooking up anymore or I'm not going to at all. You know, I, I, I'm a Christian person. I'm saving myself for my marriage partner. So no, I'm not, I'm not playing that game anymore. I'm not playing it at all. It's, it's bold that way. It's bringing a hurting friend to church because we all have friends who are hurting. Instead of saying, you know, come to church with me, it's next week I'm picking you up at 945 and we're, we're going to church. I'm bringing you to church with me. It's, it's boldness. God, make me bold today. Make me a bold follower of Jesus Christ. No matter how hard the culture is, no matter how much opposition or threats there may be, make me a bold witness for Jesus' sake. Use me. Acts 5.18, they arrested the apostles, put them in public jail. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail, brought them out. And the angel says to him, go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. This is the second time they'd been in jail that week. Now an angel comes and miraculously lets them out of the jail. And what does he say? Now go hunker down somewhere so they don't catch you again. He says, go right back where they arrested you and keep on doing what you're doing. I'm, I'm just amazed. Three things on your outline. Boldness almost always triggers spiritual opposition. They arrested the apostles, put them in jail. Listen, people will make fun of you. They will laugh at you. They'll talk behind your back. You won't be invited to all the parties. You'll get passed over for the promotion. People may not let your kids play with their kids because you're a Christian and you go to that church. No, I don't want my kids associating with your kids. I was, in a, I was in a small group Bible study on the campus of Valparaiso University back in the day, uh, and this was a group of, you know, lukewarm Lutheran kids, and they told me not to come back to the Bible study. I, you're looking at a guy who got kicked out of a Bible study <laughs> for being too bold. <laughs> Boldness almost always triggers spiritual opposition. I want to put this statement on the screen, and, and please hear it if you can. If you're not ready to face opposition for your obedience to God, you're not ready to be used by God. You have to decide. Here's the second thing. Boldness often releases God's miracles. But an angel of the Lord came at night. You know, the author, the author of the book of Acts, probably Luke, the author of the book of Acts just goes almost casually, oh yeah, and while they were in prison that night, an angel of the Lord came and let them out. Told them to get back out there and do some more preaching. Luke didn't make a big deal of the angel deliverance because he wasn't surprised by the miraculous work of God. When you walk in obedience to God, you won't be surprised by the miracles of God. No, you won't. Two weeks ago, Troy Miller, our associate who's planning a church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, finally got a building that he could move into. COVID delayed everything. He's been praying for a space and he found a businessman who would give him a building to, to meet in. It's, it's a very clean, nice building, lots of nice parking. 
a room for 100 people on the main floor and for all their children's activities on the lower floor. And you know how much he has to pay every week for that space? $150. We're not surprised. We're not surprised by the miracles of God. This is what happens when you're bold for Jesus' sake and you exercise your faith and you go for it. Miracles always follow. You've heard me say this before. The reason that most Christians and most churches and most Christian organizations never see a New Testament-style miracle is because they never take risks or operate in enough boldness to need a miracle. So boldness often releases God's miracles. And then thirdly, boldness always requires faith. Go to the temple, give the people this message of life. This is what the angel said to them. All right, you're out of prison now. Go back to the temple where they arrested you and threatened to kill you and give them the truth. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple as they were told and immediately began teaching. Man, that's bold. That is so bold. By the way, my friend Ken Pollitz, he was going to go into business with his dad or like his dad, very successful businessman. And Ken got out, of, got out of the university and realized, nope, God's calling me into ministry. And years ago, Ken Pollitz and his wife planted a Lutheran church in Ottawa, Ohio, and they've been pastoring that church all these years, winning people to Jesus. Come on now. Isn't that good? Isn't that great? Let me just say it this way. What Jesus has done for me, I can't keep to myself. Can't do it. I'm all wired up to keep it to myself. That's my instinct, keep it to myself. My preference, keep it to myself. But I can't keep it to myself. Because the boldest thing that has ever been done in all of human history is when Jesus gave everything to satisfy the penalty of our sins and to restore our relationship with God and to give us a peaceful hope for eternity. Many of you know that last weekend was World Communion Sunday. This is traditionally when all of the Christians around the world celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion. The reason we didn't do it last week is because of the supply chain. <laughs> we've been ordering these things for two years and we've ordered them on the same schedule and they said, no, won't be here till next week. Yeah, but World Communion is this week. I said, sorry. So we're, we're, we're doing it this week. Because <laughs> we didn't want to get the elements out, you know, with bread and a cup and that sort of thing because of COVID restrictions. So, so you, you should have these elements in your hand. And if you'll just uh, tear that end where the little wafer is, the bread. On the night of the betrayal, Jesus took bread and he broke it and blessed it. 
and said to his disciples, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And as often as you gather together in my name, remember what I've done for you. Go ahead and partake that. Thanks be to God. Now, just a reminder when you're taking the top off the juice that if you try to tear the whole top off, it may jostle and it could be messy. So just tear enough off at the top so that you can drink. That'll be best. Likewise, the same night, Jesus took the cup and raised it and blessed it. He said, brethren, this represents my blood, the blood of a new covenant for the remission of the sins of the world. As often as you gather together, partake of this cup, remember what I've done for you. Now let's pray together, friends. Lord, as you have demonstrated the greatest act of bold love in all of history by surrendering everything in order to secure our salvation. I pray this dangerous prayer on our behalf this morning that you would fill us with the same boldness that would present our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. And that we might be bold and willing to go and to give and to serve and to say a good word whenever you give us opportunity. Fill us with your Holy Spirit today and therefore fill us with boldness so that we might be able to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. So help us to be everything you want and need us to be. We pray in Jesus' name and all the people said, Amen. Would you stand with us?